Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Ma Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Stephanie Webster. She is the co-owner and co-founder of The Rind in Cincinnati, Ohio, as well as the co-owner of Oakley Wines and The Bloom Room, both of which are in Cincinnati, Ohio as well. The Rind is in the Finley Market area. It's on the outer ring of the Finley Market, if you've ever been there. Bloom Room is right next door to it. That's their private event space. She gets into kind of why they expanded into that, why they opened that, why they need more room, all that stuff. And Oakley Wines is just in different part of Cincinnati, downtown there, their wine shop. They also have a chef though, and they do food, they do wine dinners, uh, they do just all sorts of stuff there at Oakley Wines. They have a great wine selection too. From what I've heard, I have not physically been into Oakley Wines yet. It is on the short list of things I still have left to do in Cincinnati, Ohio that I need to do and need to get to. I just ran out of time the last time I was there, so didn't have a chance to stop in, but we'll be stopping in soon. Have personally been to the Rind in OTR. It's a small little cheese shop, big selection. They also do have some sandwiches there too as well, so you can stop in and grab lunch or whatever uh, if you're kind of in the market area. Or grab a couple pieces of cheese and what have you. And then the Bloom Room, like I mentioned earlier, is their private event space where they can do different things outside and inside of kind of the Rind. And Stephanie gets into all that stuff. So really wanted to have her on, just we've only really had John Reese on from Black Radish Cream Rooms focused on cheese and Stephanie's doing a little bit different where they're not making the cheese themselves they're partnering with people that make cheese and those are the people that they're featuring in their wine shop so they mainly focus on Midwest but they get some stuff from California and they've had a few things from Europe here or there but it's very hard logistically to get that stuff in she kind of explains why that is a lot of the reasons you think of and then a couple that you wouldn't she's also really into wine and I always love talking wine with people that's something that I'm really interested in it is a little self-serving, but I think it's just something cool and it gets a different perspective where somebody's doing cheese and wine, which are two things that kind of naturally go together, run into separate businesses, and then they also kind of combine and how they play off each other too. So that's kind of why I wanted to have her on. Also, you know, Cincinnati is an awesome food scene. We said it over and over again. We've had a bunch of people on from Cincinnati, probably just as many almost at this point as we have in Columbus. And in Columbus is probably a little bit more though. So yeah, we just love to feature kind of awesome things going on in the Ohio state people don't really know about a lot of this stuff or you know if they travel here to conventions or sports games stuff like that whatever need a place to go eat or a place to check out like these are the places you should be visiting when you're in town just because they're the awesome places filled with people that are super passionate and talented about what they do so you can follow stephanie on instagram stephanie l webster is kind of her personal handle account but you can also follow the businesses at the rind at oakley wines and at bloom room otr you can follow us on Instagram too as well, at SpoonMob. On all these social medias, we're either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1. Uh, mainly use Instagram, which is just at SpoonMob. Throw a post up on TikTok the night before an episode releases. You can follow us there, kind of get a little sneak preview of who the guest is going to be before the episode drops at 1 a.m. on Thursday. All the episodes hit all the podcast apps Thursday 1 a.m. Then they'll drop on our YouTube channel a week later. So you can follow our YouTube channel too if you want. Check out our website all the pages for every guest that we've had on is up there links to all their episodes contact information instagram information any updates since they've been on the podcast we keep a running list too as well on the page photos of food wine businesses all that stuff you can find there you can write in questions comments feedback from the main page too as well there's like a little contact us section uh, you can write that in and then you can also email us directly spoonmob at yahoo.com if you want to write in a question to be featured on the podcast, need a recommendation, want to give us a recommendation. Um, but that's kind of where you can find us and everything. So here is my conversation with Stephanie Webster, the co-owner, co-founder of The Rind 
and the co-owner of Oakley Wines and also the Bloom Room, all of which can be found in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day. I know you're busy. You also just, I believe, had a baby not too long ago. So I know how that can be exhausting and just sleep deprivation and all that stuff. So hopefully uh, that's going well for you. You have a couple of businesses in the Cincinnati area. I have not been into Oakley Wines yet, but we have been into the Rind, the cheese shop that you have, which was your first business. So always big fans of finding kind of local cheese producers and doing kind of small batch things and people that you partner with and everything. So I want to get into that. And then you obviously have the Bloom Room, uh, which just uh, recently you guys started too as well, which is kind of next door. So I want to get to all that stuff. But I always like to you know start at the beginning with everyone. How did you kind of first get involved with cheese and then later wine when you guys purchased Oakley Wines? Because like originally you were a teacher for like two years, you know, before that. You know, grew up never knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, like I knew I liked science. I was like, I guess I'll just major in biology because, you know, I like it, but didn't have any really career plans. Knew I didn't want to be a doctor. But um, so went to undergrad for biology and had a microbiology lab study in fermentation. We made yogurt and cheese and wine out of Welch's grape juice. The wine was terrible, of course, but the cheese and yogurt were amazing. So I started, you know, just like making yogurt next to my heater in my little college apartment and making my husband eat it or who is now my husband and my boyfriend. But and then we just started like getting a little more serious about it. We bought the right equipment to make yogurt. And then we started like, you know, reading about like milk and seasonality and raw milk and we actually joined a herd share here locally. So raw milk, of course, is illegal in Ohio. But if you own the cow, then you can have the milk. The way to get around it is you buy 120th of a cow and you pay housing rent for your cow to this farmer. And then you can get their raw milk. And so we would then like spend our Saturdays we would like skim the cream off the milk and we would make butter. And then we would um, either make yogurt with the skimmed milk or then we started making some cheese like mozzarella and, you know, some simple like ricotta and like fromage blanc, fresh cheeses. We just kept getting more and more serious with that just as a hobby at home. You know, I graduated, still didn't know what I wanted to do. Got this opportunity to go to grad school on a fellowship and took it and became a teacher for two years, all the while still messing around with cheese, you know, as a hobby. Anytime we went out of town, we'd visit the little cheese shops and we'd say, well, like, why doesn't Cincinnati have like a cute little place where I can like sit at the bar, talk and learn about cheese and drink good wine. Just kind of as I was like realizing like teaching was not going to be as sustainable for me. I truly believe that you have to grow up wanting to be a teacher. Like it has to be in your soul. Like you can't be a person that's like, I don't know what I want to do and then become a teacher. So it just wasn't going to be sustainable for me. So I, we were at this little cheese shop in Denver and I, I was just like, let's open a cheese shop in Cincinnati. And um, we wrote a business plan, just would drive around. We live in OTR. So we knew we wanted it to be an OTR. And I like saw this for rent sign hanging on a building and I just called. It's now the cigar shop, which is right across from the Rhine. But the owner, the building owner was like, I'm not ready yet. 
but let me put you in touch with the owner of the building across the street. He introduced us and then I don't know, one thing led to the next. And all of a sudden we were like applying for grants and emptying our savings and taking the equity out of our house and putting all in and we opened the Rhine. And as far as, you know, the wine, so I, you know, have always worked in restaurants. So like since I was 16, you know, hostess at Applebee's and then like moved on to more fine dining, always at places with good wine lists, Polas, Orchids here in town, Davies, just all through college. I've always worked in the industry. And in fact, I was like so excited to not be in the industry anymore. You know, I'm, I'm going to have a nine to five and that didn't obviously last very long. I was like, I have to get back to the industry because it's energizing, you know, like when you get done with the day, you still have energy, even though you have spent so much. I, so we've I've always worked in great wine lists, always been interested in wine. In fact, in my undergrad, my thesis was about using like native um, flora for fermentation, like to do a natural fermentation to like increase, like to have better aromatics and more terroir. I'm like, little did I know, like that was like natural wine. And now that's like a thing. I mean, it, it's always been a thing, but I didn't know that then. I was so excited to have wine at the cheese shop. Of course, you have to have wine and cheese. And that ended up just being so fun for me to like buy wine, talk about wine, taste wine. I went to France that first summer or after the Rhine had been open for one year. I went to France for a month to work in some um, Comte caves. And I got back and like the cheese shop was fine without me for a whole month. And I was like, I think we could do another thing. So right at that time, a mutual friend was like, hey, my buddy is trying to sell his wine shop. Like, I think you would be a great fit. Um, I was like, "What? what's the shop? And they were like, Oakley Wines. And I had never even been there. And so we went, my husband and I went and I was like, let's buy Oakley Wines. And so we just bought it. It was a failing business, to be honest. The numbers were like not good. Um, and we worked really hard to kind of turn that around those first two years. Then the pandemic hit and it was kind of like resetting and starting all over. But but that's kind of how we ended up with the Ryan and Oakley wines. So going back real quick, when you're a teacher, because you were teaching biology and chemistry, which I can't think of possibly a harder uh, subject to teach than chemistry. Maybe that's just from my own experience of going through chemistry and just not really grasping a whole lot of it. You know, that two-year stint when you're a teacher, was it what you expected? Did you like it? Or was it like, as soon as you kind of got into it, you were like, this is not what I thought. I don't know about this. I really liked it. And, you know, I do feel like I was a, you know, a good teacher. I, um, in fact, I still have students that will stop by the Rhine. Like my previous students, they're all like graduated and have jobs now, which is insane. But they'll stop by occasionally still, which is very sweet. But um, I liked it. I, and honestly, maybe if I had stuck with it a little longer, I would have started to see the reward. It's just such a delayed kind of reward right like it was like you put all your soul and heart and like into you know into teaching and these kids and and it's not until like several years later that they'll come back and be like you were my favorite teacher and I'm just like what well why did you give me such hell and make me write you up 20 times in a week I just felt really drained when I got home completely drained I couldn't even like carry on a conversation with my husband, I would be like dead asleep at eight o'clock 
talking in my sleep on the couch because I was just so exhausted. And I think that was like such a different than the industry. Like I was saying, like, I feel really energized when I'm, you know, when I was like waiting tables and um, interacting with people and being around food and beverage, I, even though it was a long day, you know, very long days, 12 hour days, and you're on your feet the whole time and you're lifting. And, you know, I still felt when I got home, like that I could, that I was like happy and I was able to talk and I would want to go have a drink, you know, and it was just such a different end of day feeling just couldn't hack it. <laughs> and I'm still friends with, you know, a lot of my teacher friends. Um, um, it is way harder of a job than being a small business owner. Like it's just, I will never forget how hard that was. So when you open the cheese shop, the rind, you have this experience in Denver, it kind of gives you the idea. You see this void in the marketplace, but what was it specifically about cheese that made you want to open a dedicated store to it? You know, instead of maybe having the traditional restaurant concept where there was a marketplace aspect filled with cheese or or maybe it would have been, you know, just something, uh, a restaurant based around cheese itself. But you went kind of all in on a retail, you know, cheese store. What was it about cheese that kind of really pulled you in and like made you want to just feature that? You know, I was saying like just our hobby of just like making cheese every weekend and like the science of cheese and fermentation in general is just really interesting to me. But I knew I didn't want to be a cheese maker. You know, I like the city. I that's like like cheese making is very like hard, like backbreaking sometimes very solitary, you know, and I knew I wanted to be around people. So I'm like, how do I do cheese? Like, how do I do this thing that I love to eat and think is great without um, being a cheese maker? And so I was like, I like the cheese monger thing. Like that, that's how I can like do cheese and still like feel like I'm, you know, in the, in the service industry. And, you know, while the Rind is a retail shop, it was always in our business plan and still is a huge component of the shop is like this idea of sitting down and having a cheese plate and pairing it with wine and doing like wine and cheese pairing classes. And, you know, of course, now we do sandwiches. So it really is a hybrid in-house dining and retail shop. The idea was that you know, you come in, you sit down, you have a cheese plate, you have a glass of wine. We talk about the cheeses on your plate. And then you're like, I really love two of these. And you take a quarter pound of each of them home. You know, that was kind of like, in fact, when we were writing our business plan and we were just like, if like 12 people every day came in and had a cheese plate and a glass of wine and bought two pieces of cheese to go home, like we will break even. We can do this. Um, yeah, it was always the idea to have a very strong in-house dining component as well. I know you said you wanted it to be in the OTR cause that's where you guys live. So you wanted to be able to walk to work. Did you specifically also want it to be close to Finley market just because, you know, this is 2016, 2017, that was kind of the, in a way, epicenter of all this foot traffic that would kind of flow there, especially on the weekends where. I think probably the northern part of OTR was still going through some renovations and, and whatnot, probably at that time. So did you specifically want to be around Finley Market or just in general in OTR and wherever it happened to be, it would have worked out as things kind of redeveloped? 
we would walk around and dream about, you know, all the different places. At the time, the spot that Longfellow is in now was open. The OTR chamber had just moved out of it. And we would go and like look in the windows and, and like kind of like think about it there. But then, you know, we've always come to the market, you know, even even before we lived in OTRs, it was always like a weekend thing that we did. And I think it was kind of by chance that I drove up the road and saw that sign like for rent. But then of course, now I can't imagine this shop in any other place other than the northern part of OTR near the market. You know, looking back, like had by chance we had gotten that, you know, spot that long fill is in. I, I just don't see it working in the same way. We definitely, you know, are part of people's regular, you know, our Finley market shoppers, regular stops, you know, they're, we're like one of six places that they hit up every time. And, you know, thinking about, you know, we are a grocer. So like, had we been like kind of an island in OTR somewhere, I just don't imagine that we'd be on people's stops, you know, and maybe it would have been different, right? Like maybe, maybe we would have turned in more to a, a bar and cheese place, sit down and less of a grocer. But um, I mean, we love the market. We love being here. There's so much foot traffic, of course, in the weekends too. Really, you know, the market is just so supportive and I just, I can't imagine the Ryan being anywhere else. You primarily focus on cheeses from like the Midwest. So like Ohio, Kentucky, Wisconsin, Indiana, Missouri. I think there's some European stuff, but was that purposeful? Was that by design? Like you wanted to feature kind of the Midwest area or is that just kind of how it wound up working out? We wanted to do all American cheeses. Um, And that was because multiple reasons. One, you know, there are two other cheese shops at the market. You know, there's um, Silverglades and Gibbs, who I love and who I bought cheese from previously, you know, and they already have a wide selection of European cheeses. And so you don't really need a third place, you know, having the same set of cheese in the same area. The other reason is because, you know, there is like an American artisanal cheese kind of revolution happening. And it it was kind of just starting around, you know, when we opened the shop and a lot of new cheesemakers coming on board. And we work directly with a lot of these places. We get them shipped directly. Everybody loves French cheese. I love French cheese. But when you have a, a soft French cheese, a young soft French cheese, you know, that is being made strictly for export to the US. So they actually have two separate facilities. So like, one for like the French market and one for export to America because the FDA is so strict with um they'll they'll show up to their creameries. So they have a separate facility that they're, you know, just just for American export. And then of course it's, you know, the transport time over the ocean, you know, all of the temperature um abuse that can happen along the way. And then you get this like young soft cheese. And like the quality is so low. Compare that to, you know, getting something from the Midwest, like goat cheese, the same young soft goat cheese, and they are making it to order for us. And we, they ship it to us. And there's, it's just such a higher quality product. And that has taken a lot to kind of change people's mind about because, you know, the, you know, you've gone to France and you've had like, you know, these amazing cheese experiences, but like, unfortunately it's just that quality cannot exist 
in the U.S. because of the FDA, because of export regulations, and because of how it gets here. Um, so we we you know wanted to do um, American cheese just because we can get it easier. It's, and it's a higher quality product once it gets here. You know, like I said, there's kind of a void in the market for that too here in Cincinnati. So how do you go about selecting somebody to partner with and, and work with and ha- carry their cheese and their products? Is it you have to visit them firsthand to kind of see the operation, make sure it aligns with kind of your values and your beliefs? Or are you getting sent samples in the mail from all these places that are like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, would you carry this kind of thing? Like, how do you pick what you carry? Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, we, of course, have our standards. We want cheeses that are made from healthy animals that are on grass, um, pasture raised. So that's first and foremost, um, is animal husbandry practices. Are they, are the animals in a barn and they've never seen grass in their life and they're eating fermented grain or are they on pasture? We want pasture. We think it's a ethical number one, and then also a better product in the end. And we're just looking for like, you know, small batch cheeses. We don't want cheeses that are made in a factory. You can get those at Kroger, you know, as long as they kind of like match that, like kind of animal husbandry practices, kind of that small batch idea. We're totally open to bringing in their cheeses if we love them and we would want to eat them. Um, We, so that's kind of how we go about. We've definitely visited plenty of places. One of my favorites is Andy Hatch in Wisconsin. He is Uplands Cheese. He makes Pleasant Ridge Reserve and Rush Creek in the fall. He's just like this kind of everything that we look for. So you go visit him and he, he wants to show you his grass first. And, you know, it's just like to you, it's just grass. But then he like points out all the individual native grasses and flowers and herbs that the that the cows are grazing on. And, you know, that's really the basis of any good cheese is number one, first the pasture. And so he's putting as much time on his pasture as he is, you know, making the cheese and aging the cheese. You know, you kind of have this like romantic idea of cheese making, right? Like you're on a farm and yeah, rolling green pastures and family, you know, milking the animals. And that is truly how a lot of the cheeses in our case are made. Like even though it is this kind of romantic idea I remember going to Capriol for the first time. She's she's just north of Louisville in Indiana. And she, you know, and sometimes you are invited to these places and you're a little bit like, what am I going to see? You know, you know, she's been around since the 80s. You kind of think like probably she's kind of mechanized some of these processes, whatever. But it just, it's not like that. She's like in a log cabin on the same property. Her creamery is right there. It has this tiny window, like looking over like the beautiful pasture. And, you know, there's like three or four people making cheese and it's just so idyllic. Those are the people that we, you know, are supporting and want to support and feel like we're truly changing the world by, by supporting them and their farming practices and their cheese making practices. When people come into the shop, how much do they know? Like how knowledgeable is your average consumer and and how much educating do you guys do? That is definitely a huge part of our job. I think in the beginning, we definitely had people look in our case and not be enthused by it. You know, like where's the Gruyere? Where's the Manchego? Where, you know, and we would, you know, definitely educate like, 
well, we don't have Gruyere, but we do have this cheese that's made the same exact way and tastes very similar, but it's made in Wisconsin. And, you know, I just think over the years, people have learned to trust us and we kind of get variety of people. We get people that have never been in a cheese shop and have, but I've seen us on Instagram and want to come check it out and, you know, don't know how to order cheese from a case. And that's totally fine. And we show them how to do it and guide them through the process. We have people that come in now and ask for very specific kind of boutique cheeses that we have, like they wouldn't really have access to anywhere else, which is super fun because they've gained that love through the rind. Um, And then we still do have those people that are, you know, looking for, for those kind of European cheeses that can be swayed. Is there like a cheese region or style that you kind of gravitate towards like that you really prefer i would say i love soft goat and hard sheep so like i love like beautiful delicate soft goat cheeses made in the style that they make in the loire pyramids and boucheron and yummy goat cheese i love firm cheeses especially in the style that they make in the Basque region of France and Spain. So like they're a little bit funky and kind of olivey, more, yes, kind of stronger, pair well with um, tinfish. That's what I, that's what I bring home. When I'm having a bad day, take a little piece of Sophia from Capriol, just a little soft goat cheese, and a Basque, which is from Wisconsin, fun little Basque style sheep cheese. Is there like a cheese region a a state that you guys haven't featured yet or that you do want to kind of something that you're excited about to potentially add to the shop uh, selection in the near future we have very easy access to you know a lot of midwest cheeses a lot of east coast cheeses it's those west coast cheeses that you know we still kind of have issues getting for shipping reasons and just lack of distribution in the midwest in general so we, you know, are, we're still looking for ways to, to get those cheeses in good shape here. Like we've, you know, the logistical stuff, you know, like putting together a pallet and getting it like shipped across the U.S. and like trucking and like how to pay the truckers and how you estimate what's on a pallet. It's like, I didn't get into logistics, you know, so I'm it's still like, baffles me how to do this, but we're, we're still working on that, how to put together a pellet from some of these fun West coast places. Is that why like a lot of cheese shops don't do any sort of like nationwide shipping or like if they do, it's all hard cheeses. It's just because anything that's not super hard, it's just really hard to guarantee the quality when it arrives. Like you guys have an online shop and like you can do to go ordering and stuff like that. But It's not like if I lived in Arizona and I was like, hey, can you ship me this? Like, it's probably not going to like work out because it's probably not going to be good or, you know, it's not cost effective with the postage and all that stuff. Yes, it is so hard to ship cheese. So we do ship our cheese club. You know, we ship, we have like about a dozen people that we ship to some in Louisiana, Mississippi, like those are the really hard ones where it's like very hot all the time. And we've definitely had shipments not make it or arrive and just be totally not good anymore. No matter how many ice packs we throw in there, no matter how quick we try to get it to them, you know, and yeah, like you said, at some point it doesn't make sense, right? Like, like if we're shipping three quarter pounds of cheese worth $35 and it takes cost $70 in packaging and shipping to get there, I don't know, you know, like 
can I recommend a local cheese shop to you? Uh, <laughs> it's hard. I, if anybody listening has any suggestions on how to better and easier ship cheese, I am all ears. It is, we have not figured out the best way. Is there a type of cheese that like hasn't caught on yet or hasn't had its moment, but you think will soon? You kind of look and like blue cheese had a moment and Gorgonzola was big a few years ago, but is there anything that like you kind of see with people coming into the shop and everything and go like, yeah, that might catch on. And like, that might become a really big thing here in the next year or two. That's a funny question because I've always thought of cheese as so traditional, you know, and it's been around for ever since, you know, ever since we've fermented milk. I do see trends, you know, in the cheese world, of course, like cheese boards, like fancy cheese boards is definitely like a trend in the last few years. But I don't know. I don't know if I really see, you know, cheese as something that will catch on because it's such a traditional food. I don't know. We definitely have people, um, you know, who don't like blue that we're able to bring to the blue side or, you know, people that just like can't eat goat cheese that, you know, we're able to sway over. But as far as like a specific type of cheese having a moment, I don't know. It's such a traditional food. I see more like cheese boards or cheese cake stacks or what other kind of fun, trendy stuff. Kits or those are kind of things that I see as more kind of trendy. I don't know what the next thing is though. What's the last like cheese that you came across or had that like really made an impression on you that you were like, whoa, I didn't either. You didn't think like it was going to taste like that, or you were surprised that it came from this region and, and had this kind of flavor profile. Like what was it? As much as I just told you about, you know, French, soft cheeses not making it here well like i love french goat cheese there is a producer in wisconsin blakesville creamery and everything she's doing is amazing and we recently got a cheese in it's called um shabby shoe it is a beautiful kind of tall-ish goat cheese with a geotrichum rind so it's a rind that looks like a brain. It tends to have like a very kind of yeasty kind of bakery type aroma. And it's just so perfectly done. It's just, it's as light and fluffy as a well-baked cheesecake, but it has like this kind of bakery toasted kind of aroma as well. And it ripens perfectly. And I had it recently and I was like, this is the best cheese, new cheese that I've had and maybe several years. Very good. Everything she's doing is very cool. Blakesville, we normally have a lot of, you know, at least three or four of her cheeses in the case. Um, highly recommend trying any of those. When you guys buy Oakley wines, right, kind of gets pitched to you, you guys you know, decide to buy it and everything. Like you said, it, it wasn't really set up to be a thriving business when you guys took it over. So how much of a challenge is that to like, when you take over this business, you kind of already know like it's not it could be better what do you focus on first like what is the first thing that you're like all right we have to improve this before this before this before this like how do you approach that so so two very different kind of business experiences right like the rind was very much like we wrote a business plan and we like found this place and did a full build out and it was like totally our kind of unique idea and then we had this 
this other business, Oakley Wines, it was already existing and already had a customer base. And we thought it would be easier. Like we were just like, there's people already here and all we have to do is kind of take over. And that was just absolutely not the case. It was like trying to turn around a cruise ship, you know, it was so hard to do that. And we were, you know, I think the first thing that we tackled with Oakley was the food program. Oakley is a special place and actually we're the third owners of it. So it started as like a little retail shop on the corner. And then um, Zach Edson bought it and made it what it is today. And then, you know, he had kids and was just like, I'm out. We, you know, really wanted to make everything from scratch at the time. A lot of the stuff was kind of coming already pre-prepared and just kind of put on a plate. And so the first thing we did, we kind of overhauled the food menu to make it match more of what we were doing at the Rhine too. Because even at the Rhine, we do make our own accoutrement. You know, we have, we make our own mustard and candy pecans and crostini and all the little things that go with cheese we do in-house too. So that's kind of the first thing that we tackled. We got some entertainment in there. We came up with like a private events program, um, anything to get, you know, people in and butts and seats and how do we make this happen? We moved a lot of our classes there at the time we were doing them at the Rhine. Just try to get like people to like know that we were now connected. And and I feel like we were, you know, so this was 2018, fall of 2018. And, you know, we were working on all this stuff and we were finally like hitting our stride winter of 2019. Like we were like, we had finally built it to something sustainable and then the pandemic hit. Um, we actually closed it for three months because obviously a lot of, you know, restaurants and bars closed because, and we thought we lost it. Like we were like, it's over. Like Ugly Wines is over. Like we were finally there and now it's done. And um, then of course, you know, everything settled and we we're like, okay, we can open this back up. And I think that was probably in July, maybe of 2020. And to be honest, the pandemic was like the best thing that happened to Oakley. So, so when we took over, we were very focused on not losing any current customers and clientele and like, how do we keep them, but like also build it. So we were making just a lot of concessions on things to keep them. When the pandemic hit and we closed, it was kind of just like a huge reset. And it was like, okay, let's open this how we would have from scratch. And that's what we did. We we changed the interior, dropped some of the things that weren't working for us, and we lost customers. Since we have gained so many new ones that, you know, the customers that we were definitely like looking for and wanting. And so it was a, it's been a tough ride at Oakley, but um, it's finally come together. It's five years. You know, there's a handful of independent wine shops in the Cincinnati area. So what was your guys' approach you know, when you do the reset, when you built it back up to the way you wanted it to be, was it focusing on a specific wine region or did you just want to be kind of a catch-all for the neighborhood and community that you were in? Like what was kind of the, the vision that you guys wound up instilling at that point forward? We, again, kind of revamped our food, um, made it like kind of much, in our opinion, kind of match more to the wine and be a lot more creative. Our chef, David Saffles is super creative and helped us with that. His first day was actually the day that we closed down <laughs> and he came to the Rhine and made pimento cheese and family meal every single day. 
for three months until we were able to open Oakley back. So we, you know, just kind of really looked at our food program and started making a lot of improvements there. We were not so married to the idea that we needed like a wine from each place so that if someone came in and they wanted Sancerre, we needed to have three Sancerres for them to pick from. And we just started more like, what do we want to drink? What are we drinking? In the summertime, we're drinking whites and rosés. So our whites and rosés kind of, you know, balloon in summer. And then in the fall and winter, we're drinking more red wine. So we have more of a red wine selection. And we weren't so married to the idea of like making sure that we had a representation from like each region so that we wouldn't make someone mad if they came in looking for something and we didn't have it. We focused a lot on education. Um, educating um, our, all of our team members online on proper service. Um, we went from bar service pre-pandemic to table service post-pandemic, which is something that I've always wanted to do, um, but we just weren't set up for it. Like people were coming into for tastings and they like pre-pandemic coming in for p- tastings coming in. It was more of a bar to be honest, and then. Post-pandemic, it turned into more of what we had in mind, which was a wine bar with really great food. Um, so we were able to start offering table service, um, guiding you know the wine experience a little more professionally than pre-pandemic. And so, yeah, we kind of started just with like better service, better wine, better food. When you guys decided to open the Bloom Room, what led to that? Like what was kind of the idea was that something that you had always envisioned or did that just kind of happen out of the blue bloom room was funny because so when we first opened the rind this was um where i'm at now i'm actually in bloom room was a uh candy shop i can't remember when they closed down i do think it was before the pandemic um and the place kind of sat empty christmas of 2020 we wanted to do this like whole gift box um kind of program for Christmas for the first year. But, you know, if you've ever been to the Rind, it's very small. There's nowhere to display, you know, gift boxes. And I was just like, I wonder if they'll let us use Bloom Room as just kind of like a little pop-up space for like a gift box store, a holiday shop. They weren't into, you know, it was like a little late. It was like already September and they really, I don't know, the owners, they they were going to open a bourbon bar and it just wasn't the right time. And so it sat empty another year. And, um, I was just like, I think, well, for one, our business at the Rhine totally changed. You know, we were doing a lot of stuff to go, like our cheese board started picking up and we just needed more space to store things. And Loom Room has this like huge basement. We, we just kind of ran out of space at the Rhine. So we were like, we need more space. Number one. Then also during the pandemic, a lot of, some jobs became more administrative. So like keeping our online store up to date, taking pictures of products, doing um, custom catering kind of jobs, like and communicating with those people. Because we had now all this kind of admin work, we didn't have anywhere for those people to go. So we were like, we also need kind of an office space for like myself and the couple of people that were doing admin stuff. So that was second. And then third, you know, Oakley Wines, we were doing a lot of private events there. And we realized like how important that was to the sustainability of the business. 
And we were like, the rind really needs that component too, because people were trying to like rent out the rind or our courtyard. And it's just so hard to do like during open hours. And it's so small. I mean, we're like, cool, like your party of 12 can rent out the whole space. We need this kind of private event component for sure. And a place to have our classes and the right timing happened with the landlords, the CEO of Finley Market at the time put us in contact because the market really wants all of these storefronts built. And it was just sitting here empty. They put us in contact and the CEO at the time, like kind of talked to the landlords, like, I don't know if this bourbon bar is going to happen for you guys. So they decided to run it out to us. Great deal. We built it out and it's heavily used. Had you not gotten the space next door, what do you think would have happened? Would you guys have just opened a a third location, just a dedicated office space? Or what do you think would have happened if you guys didn't get the space that is the Bloom Room now? We played around with lots of ideas. So during the pandemic, Harvest closed, um, which is in the building, the other side, which is now Kanji. But that was sitting empty. And we were just like, do we just move over there? It's a bigger space. Like, but it has a kitchen. We don't need a kitchen. Um, So we definitely like thought about that. It's actually the same building owner as the Rind. And so that would have been easy. But it it probably was just too much space for us. We, I don't know what we would have done. I don't think we could have expanded in the way, you know, that we have. Like we started um, getting these custom cheese boards made for us by a, a wood company in Wisconsin called Dufek. And we have to buy a lot of them at one time and there's nowhere to store them. So like we, w- we just wouldn't have been able to like offer the things that we are able to now. It would have been very stagnant. We wouldn't have been able to grow in the way that we have and all the different directions that we've had, you know, the custom catering direction and gift boxes and clubs, you know, all of the things kind of happen out of Bloom Room now. Um, I just don't know how we would have done it out of the Rhine. We did a lot out of the Rhine for a long time. Um, and we really needed this space. Now you're also a certified cheese professional, which the requirements are like, you have to work a certain number of hours and like a cheese profession, cheese affiliated business, and also have to pass a multiple choice, like 150 question test, right? What was the most challenging part of getting that certification for you? Finding the time to hunker down and study. Also trying to like run two businesses. And I, you know, that trip to France when I worked for a month in the Comte Caves helped me better grasp kind of PDO European cheeses that I don't have a lot of experience working with because we work with mostly American cheeses and confidence, you know, too. It is a hard test. And I've known lots of people that have failed their first time and have had to take it two or three times. And it's expensive test to take. So if you fail it, that sucks. It's like $500. Like, you know, it was just like a lot's on the line here. Like if I were like an employee of Murray's, they just pay for me to take it and they would pay for me to take it again. And it's not that difficult or, you know, not, there's not so much pressure about that. But, you know, when I was, you know, just a small business owner. $500 was a lot of money to fail a test. So a lot of pressure, time to study. And then of course, like the embarrassment, had I, had I failed, like putting yourself out there and then like, had I failed, my, my staff would have lost all their respect for me. <laughs> They'd be like, who is this lady that I'm working for that thinks she knows so much about cheese? Getting over that kind of fear of failure too. 
Um, and since then, um, our, our lead cheesemonger, our, our cheese buyer now, her name is Meg. She has actually gotten her certification too. So we have two people on staff now with Certified Cheese Professional. Was that something that you felt that you needed to do just for, to help the business? You know, if you're recommending cheeses, you felt that like a certification would, would help kind of establish you or was it something that you wanted to do just to kind of make sure you had all the knowledge that you could have? You know, I think in, you know, in school, like I'm kind of like a, I'm an achiever, you know, and like, I want like, I want the pens and I want the certifications and I want the like piece of paper that says this. So it was like kind of natural for me to like want to get that. But like, even since then, I've kind of lost that a little bit. And like, I don't, you know, like, I don't feel the need to like, go get a SOM certification, like I did when I was a little bit younger. But you know, I think with cheese being, you know, not like so well known, maybe in the Midwest, I thought it would like kind of legitimize business and myself, you know, and the cheese world. And you know, it's a community thing for sure, you know, and being connected with all of those people um, that are certified and part of the American Cheese Society, which is the body that does the certification. Um, so you're, you know, really connected to a lot of cheesemongers and a lot of cheese makers. And um, that all felt really valuable as well. Being a wine shop owner, when you guys do get the chance to go out Whenever that is, do you compulsively check the wine list or are you able to just kind of disconnect and, and enjoy uh, the experience out? Oh, no, it's definitely looking at the wine list and passing harsh judgments. I know where you can get a good glass of wine in town. And if I know you, I can't get a good glass of wine there, I'm just going to order a cocktail or a beer. Is there for you a, a wine region or a wine style that uh, you kind of gravitate towards? Occasionally, I'll have the opportunity to, you know, a, a guest will reach out and they'll say, like, put together a case for me. Here's my budget. And I'll just be like, okay, like, what am I drinking? And I'll just like pull a bunch of wine off the shelf and take it, like, set them on the bar and look at them. And I'm like, why are these all French? Like, these are all French wine. Um, so I think I definitely love French wine. I love champagne. I love Loire wines because they pair so well with cheese. I love rosé from Provence. I love Syrah from the Rhone. I love Burgundy. I would drink champagne and Burgundy if I could afford it every single day. I love French wine. It's just what I, and it's like, like always on accident, you know, I'm like, you know, I love Italian wine too, but like if I'm picking stuff for myself or if I'm picking something for a guest and I'm not really thinking about like diversifying the case, it just happens that it's all French. So I think I just love, really love French wine. Is there any wine that you're kind of excited to potentially focus on in the future, whether it's something you haven't tried too much of, but is coming back and being intriguing to you to look at now or something that you just recently learned about? Because, you know, we're always constantly, everybody's always, you know, learning more and more about whatever that they're focused on. So is there anything in the wine world that you're you know, like, oh, well, that'd be interesting to try. Like, let me focus on that for a while. Well, the holidays are coming up, so now we get to buy all the champagne and burgundy, which is always very exciting. So it's that time of the year where people actually, you know, splurge on champagne, which is so fun to buy and sell and open and taste. We've also been um, just in general kind of finding ourselves gravitating toward Portuguese wines. There's still a lot of value um, for quality in Portugal, like 
very high quality sparkling wines that retail for $20 from Portugal, which is like, you know, incredibly hard to find good sparkling wine for that price point. So our actual our wine director, um, Katie, is in Portugal right now visiting a few wineries. So we've just found ourselves kind of inspired by Portugal right now, by chance, because of the high value. And we're seeing more options on the market um, here in Ohio. You'll probably see some more Portuguese representation on our shelves over the next few months, for sure. And one other cheese person, John from Black Radish Creamery, but a couple butchers on. This question I always get to ask every once in a while, but assemble for me your ideal charcuterie board. So three meats, three cheeses, the mix. You're in charge of it. What are you doing? I am doing a cow, a goat, and a sheep for my three cheeses. I am picking something from Blakesville Creamery for my goat cheese. Um, so the creamery I was talking about earlier was Shabishu or Linda Line is another cheese of theirs. That's my goat. Um, my cow is Pleasant Ridge Reserve from Upland's Cheese from Andy Hatch, who I was telling you about the grass guy. That cheese is like the most award-winning cheese in America. It's a great story. It's a very high quality cheese. It's hyper seasonal. So it tastes different throughout the year, which is so fun and uh, and just great to talk about. And for my sheep cheese, I'm either doing um, Usau Arati, which is a French Basque cheese, or the American equivalent Anabasque. We always try to like recommend a kind of variety of textures and milk type. And not that there's ever a lot of leftover cheese, but if there is, I would be so happy to have those three in my fridge for the next day. For my meats, I'm doing prosciutto de Parma for sure. I'm doing salami picante from Smoking Goose, little hard, dry, spicy salami. And if my husband's there, I will put mortadella on the board. He's a huge mortadella fan. And underground meat in Wisconsin makes a great little version. It's just fancy bologna, but... Dave loves those lowbrow meats. Those are my three meats. Those are my three cheeses. I definitely want a bunch of fresh fruit. I definitely want crusty baguette from Blue Oven, probably, or LA. And I think that would make me really happy. Maybe some jam, maybe some honey, maybe some mustard, maybe a little tin fish. Sometimes, you know, like people don't think about tin fish as like something that you could, you know, have for like a quote unquote, you know, kind of charcuterie option. But you have to have the right crowd because you don't want to have an open 10 fish for like two hours. It's going to smell up the whole place. That's my ideal charcuterie board. Something from Blakesville, a funky sheep from the Basque, Pleasant Ridge Reserve, Mortadella, Slummy Picante, Prosciutto Department. Skyline Chili. Are you for it or are you against it? Love Skyline. I am not a Cincinnati native. We moved here. And after a long day of moving, I was like, let's go get some Skyline. And I tasted it and I was like, I will never have this again. What is this? I grew up in Georgia. So like chunky chili, right? Like is what we have there, normal chili. And then we never had it again until we were at an event, like the City Beat kind of best of event. We were vendors there and we were right across from Camp Washington. And we were so hungry and it was smelling so good that I was like, I'm just going to give this another chance. And I had it and I was like, I think I like this now. And so for a while, we only went to Camp Washington. But then as we, you know, came to love Cincinnati Chili, now we're like, now Oakley Skyline is our, is our skyline. 
So you've been in Cincinnati for a number of years now, even though you're not originally from there, but you get kind of a firsthand view of watching, you know, the market in action and kind of people come and go, uh, vendors in the market too as well for various reasons. So in regards to the city's food scene, what do you think still needs to change or, or be improved upon? Where do you kind of see it headed? What are some things that you'd like to see make their way into Cincinnati? I think our food scene is so amazing. And, you know, when I do go back home to Savannah and I just kind of quickly realize like how many great places there are in Cincinnati to bring people and to enjoy just every night because it's just not the same in every city. We're so lucky. I am especially grateful for, um, you know, Hideki who has brought like such amazing um, Japanese food and of course Mochiko too, that I felt like that was like a huge kind of void that's now full. I think we have enough burgers and pizza. I don't know. There's, you know, there's some, and we have a ton of Italian, right? But I could eat pasta every day. So that's okay. I'm really excited about Colette, the the kind of French um, place that's going to be opening in the old Zula spot. That's going to be, I think really cool. We definitely need something like that. You know, as far as like what needs to change, I don't know. You know, I think, I think there's just some, still some of that like kind of, um, you know, lingering restaurant culture uh, that has changed a whole lot, but you know, like being a woman in the industry and just totally feeling really out of place and in a sea of men. And so I'm excited for, to see, you know, any more women owned restaurants, food businesses, you know, it's definitely hard to find a community sometimes. Um, I'd like to see more of that. And I'd like to see them get more recognition. What's next for you professionally? You got the three kind of businesses right now, but I mean, is is there a potential to open a yogurt shop or, you know, anything upcoming? Yeah, no, our, um, me and my husband's deal to each other right now with no more businesses. So we are just like, you know, we have a one-year-old and I'd love to just spend more time with him and find some more balance. In December, we actually opened or built an Airbnb um, in Adams County, like a kind of like a little cabin. And if we do do anything else, it might be along that line where it's a little more passive and like less, a lot of work every single day. (laughs) But yeah, we're just trying to yeah still find some balance and spend a little more time with Wallace, our son, and do that for a little while and be content with that. Like I think Dave and I's problem is like if we have too much free time, we start planning other businesses. And so now that we don't have as much free time with Wallace, you know, that's good for us <laughs> to be busy with him. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, Eddie Boyd, who is our rep here uh, from Voyager Beverage for Columbus and Dayton. Uh, he left behind a question. What do you think is missing from your current restaurant industry scene? And what would you like to see more of? So I think you kind of touched on it, but I didn't know if there's anything else you'd want to add uh, to that. Would love to see more women owned and people of color um, owned businesses and not only just more of them, but you know, more recognition of them from our local press. I think when I read a lot of local articles, it seems to be kind of about the same guys that are great, but like, there's a lot, there are a lot of cool things. I mean, just right down the street, there's this like very cool, like Cuban spot now, a Jamaican spot. 
I would just like to see a little more recognition for, you know, some of the little guys and girls in our local press. Um, but also, you know, just the food scene in general. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Could it be put together your ideal cheese board? I would be so interested to hear all of these food professionals take on that. Or maybe, you know, what cheese is in your cheese drawer at home right now. And I bet everyone will say Velveeta or American cheese, which is fine because there is always a place for American cheese on a burger. Well, hopefully it's not Kraft Singles because there's a recall because the plastic sticks to the cheese and it's like a choking hazard. So there's a giant recall for that. <laughs> I heard about it on like the radio news the one day. I was like, oh, and I was like, I think we have some of that at home. And I looked I was like, yeah, we do. We got to throw that away. It's not safe. Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what's the best wine and cheese pairing you've ever had that you can recommend? Well, I'm going to cheat and do two. So the one that changed me that I was like, wow, this is what I want to do. And I found the right profession is the first time I had um, Savion Blanc from the Loire, specifically Sancerre with a soft, creamy goat cheese. That was like, right when I had that, I understood what grows together, goes together, how a good pairing can elevate each other and change both components in the best way. And that was amazing. The second one I would recommend champagne and triple cream because it's just the most decadent, like just gluttonous, no other reason to have it except pure pleasure. So a triple cream, like Trillium is in our case all of the time, but we occasionally have others. And then like real deal champagne, not Cava, not Prosecco, not Cremant, spend at least $80 and get a, you know, a good bottle of champagne and enjoy this and treat yourself because you deserve it. So the last set of questions here, we asked to everybody who comes on the podcast. So it's a nice compare and contrast across the episodes for the listeners. You get a couple extra since you're involved in both food and wine. So first one coming at you, who is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? My, I would say, well, there's, there's probably two people. One is um, Steve Jones. He is a famous monger in Portland, Oregon. He let me come and stage at his cheese shop before I opened the rind for a month and basically taught me how to cut cheese, how to take care of cheese, how to weigh cheese, how to price cheese, all of the things. And we have stayed in contact ever since then. And he has been such an open ear to like any business questions or problems or he has connected me with so many people. So I would definitely say Steve Jones and his passion for cheese is so inspiring. So, you know, at the American Cheese Society conference, um, where all the cheese people get together once a year, he always volunteers his time to just cut cheese in, in the cellar. And that's not easy to spend all day cutting cheese, but he does it because he truly, truly loves it. And it, and it reminds me because sometimes, you know, it's easy to get kind of wrapped up in all the admin work, right? Like all the emails and the, you know, events and so he's always such a good reminder of like keeping that passion for cheese and making sure you stay behind the counter as much as you can. I would also say Andy Hatch, who is the grass guy. He has helped me like just kind of form my thoughts around cheese as a traditional food and how much meaning and soul it has. And he just articulates that 
so well every time I talk to him. Um, and it also reminds me why I'm in this business because I'm supporting him and his family and telling his story and like sharing his cheese because he can't do that, right? Because he's on a farm. So I would say those two people for sure. What is your desert island wine? Champagne. Mm, specifically. Oh, I can't. I don't know if I can put. Maybe Vassel Champagne. Woman made champagne. This woman is amazing. She's actually been to Oakley Wines. She is the most composed, most beautiful, elegant person I've ever met. In fact, when she walked in, I was like, she's from Champagne, surely. And her wines are exactly the same. Like they match the person. They're elegant and beautiful and just a joy to be around and drink. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Wooden spoon. My favorite wooden spoon. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So you guys are closed. Person stuck at the airport. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. I'm going to say you should check out Kung Fu and Mary Asia. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So a place you have not visited yet. You still want to travel to. Also a restaurant you have not dined at, but you still want to get to one day. We were planning a trip to Barcelona and San Sebastian when the pandemic hit. And I want to make that trip happen for sure. And then now we have a kid. And so now it's like, do we take him? He's under two. He could fly for free. But also Spain is like such like a late night place. Do we leave him with my parents for a week? So it's a whole thing. But we're going to get back there for sure. Restaurants. Um, so, you know, I listen to one of my favorite podcasts um, is Wine Face. Uh, it's hosted by Helen Johannesson, who owns a wine shop. Helen's Wines, and it's within other, you know, uh, her partner's restaurants, so John and Benny's. So I want to go to her shop and sit down and have some wine and some John and Benny's. That would be super fun. Um, That's just in LA. I can make that happen. um, And I need to, you know, gosh, there's just so many, you know, I've only been to New York one time in my whole life. And I need to get back there. My friend Omi just opened a place in Detroit called Ladder 4. I have to have to get to. It just made like top 50 new restaurants on Bon Appetit and New York Times. So they're doing something really special there. And I absolutely need to get there too. I think uh, like last year, their chef did like a pop-up thing in Iris Reed to uh, John. So yeah, they've been uh, on the rise. It's been one of the places that's come up quite a bit. So you haven't worked in restaurants for a while, but when you did, what was the craziest thing you ever saw happen in a restaurant while you're working? Um, okay. This wasn't while I was working, but I was dining at the precinct. So, you know, sometimes you just like to like go and just get like a dozen oysters and a huge steak and like a just ridiculous big Napa cab. So that's what we did. And we hear this like sound and we look over and there is this guy choking. And this server comes over very nonchalantly, gives him the Heimlich in the middle of the dining room, shoots out like a freaking movie. And like the guy's just like in shock, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And we ask our server, like, that was the craziest thing I've ever seen in a restaurant. Like, is he okay? And they were like, yeah, like every single server is trained in the Heimlich and steak is one of the most choked on foods, especially 
when you're having very high alcohol wine and cocktails, right? Like alcohol and steak. So yeah, I saw this server just casually save someone's life. And apparently it happens like once a night in a Jeff Ruby's restaurant. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that is pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. McDonald's French fries. You know, it's so gross. My number one craving while I was pregnant was soda. And like, I had to limit myself like to like one a day. And it honestly should have been one a week. I'm pretty sure I gave myself gestational diabetes from drinking so much soda. Wallace is fine. He's so cool. He, you know, he turned out great, but um, yeah, soda, so gross, but I love it. Wine recommendations. So you own a wine shop. So broke this into four categories, zero to $20 for a bottle, zero to $50 for a bottle, zero to a hundred, and then over a hundred. If you have three that are under 20, they can fit in each one of those first three categories. So you don't have to go up to the limit, but what are you recommending for people? Person comes into the wine shop for the first time, limited knowledge about wine, but they're interested. They want to grab some bottles. What do you recommend them? All right. Um, under 20, I'm actually looking at a few wines on the shelf in front of me. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite wines under $20. It's um, La Bay Abim, Vendée Savoie. It's a white wine from the Savoie region of France. The grape is Jacquer. It is like anyone that loves Sauvignon Blanc will love it. It's a little bit more mineral, a little less fruit. It is so good with cheese. We serve, It's always on our raclette night menu. It's great acidity, easy drinking. Everyone loves it. Pair with any cheese kind of wine. So white wine from the Savoie for my under 20, zero to 50. Okay. One of my favorite producers that usually hovers around $25 for the reds and then maybe $35 for the whites is Montanitali. It is an Italian producer, this like amazing woman um, making the most soulful wines in Tuscany. Um, highly recommend any of her wines. The reds are very cool and fun and I drink them a lot, but the whites are really, really interesting and definitely what she's known for. So I would try some of those. Zero to 100. Now we're getting into champagne land and let me send you home with a bottle of Vassel Champagne. And then over 100, no real limit. Shove, producer in um, the Northern Rhone. The wines age exceptionally well. The Hermitage, the like higher end wines retail for around $350, um, which is insane. But you just put it in your cellar and you just pull out the shelf and look at it every once in a while and then just put it back in. Um, I would say, I would say shove. I, I would also recommend Savignier from um, Thibaut Baudignon. Um, he's kind of a up and coming ish. I mean, he's kind of there now in the Loire. He makes um, beautiful, beautiful Chenin Blanc. They're right around $100. Also need about 10 years of age to be able to enjoy um, laser-focused, amazing, interesting Chenin Blancs from Lilburn. What is one book, either a cookbook or one focused on beverage or even cheese that uh, you think everybody should read? There is a fun little book that I send home with a lot of our mongers when they first um, come on and even our chef at Oakley Wines. It's a book by Tia Keenan. She has a few and I am blanking on the name, but I'm such a fangirl of Tia Keenan. If you just look at her books, there's a pairing book and it has all of these very cool and out of the box recipes um, for 
pairing like kind of regular foods and cocktails and wine with cheese. She sent me a signed copy. The art of the cheese plate is what it's called. Love having that on the shelf. And lastly, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment episode scene that still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, like a culinary personality, an Emeril, a Julia Child, that just kind of always stood out to you or you kind of gravitated towards? Also an Anthony Bourdain fan. I am the worst at recalling specific episodes, but I will say I flew into Paris and as soon as I got there, the news came in that he had died in France and it was just like the weirdest, not great day um, to be landing in Paris. But yeah, definitely, you know, I have all of his books and, you know, love his definitely has influenced my relationship with food and, and travel. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. All right. Our Instagram, of course, at The Rind, at Oakley Wines, at Bloom Room OTR. I mean, there is another place called Bloom in OTR. We are not that. Bloom Room OTR. And yeah, our websites, of course. We have online stores for both locations. We deliver from The Rind. Check us out. We're about to start Reclet Night at Oakley Wines every Tuesday starting next week. That's a seasonal thing. We run it October through March. So come check out some melty cheese with, with great wines from the Savoie and Jura. Yeah, I think the Rind, uh, you guys are open Tuesday through Thursday, 10 to 6, Friday 10 to 8, Saturday 9 to 8, and then Sunday 10 to 6. And Oakley Wines is Tuesday through Saturday 1 to 10, Sunday 2 to 8 the hours there and if people want to book uh the bloom room for private events just reach out through the website or instagram or how do they do that i'm your girl i book all the events so you can you know email me directly stephanie at the rhine.com and i will get you hooked up thank you again for taking some time out of your busy schedule uh, with everything that you have going on we've been to the rhine you know we're always down to grab cheeses from any place uh, especially local place that's doing things and it's got unique stuff in there so it's always cool to stop by when you're in the Finley Market area or whatever and be making it to Oakley Wines soon as well to get some wine and check out the food menu and everything too there. Um, so it's been on the list. So next time we're in Cincinnati, we'll be stopping in. We usually make down to Cincinnati a couple times a year. So and just places kind of build up and then we come through and just knock them all off and, and check them all off. So always a fun time to be in Cincinnati and it's awesome food scene. So yeah, I'm sure we'll be stopping in and seeing you soon. Thank you for having me. Again, a big thanks to Stephanie for coming on the podcast, setting aside some time to jump on and talk about just the Rhine and coming up in Cincinnati, all her businesses, the Bloom Room, Oakley Wines too. She recently just had a baby. Was going to reach out to her kind of a little bit before that, a little bit around that time, but I knew that was kind of an event coming up in her life. And I was like, no, 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 let's just, I know how this goes. So let's just wait and wanted to just kind of wait to have her on just when it was a better time. It's an adjustment period. As anybody knows, who's had a kid going through the lead up right before, and then just kind of adjusting to life, uh, when you're responsible for this other human being. So I um, was super happy to be able to get her on. She's super busy with all the businesses, also having a newborn, a one-year-old, or it's a lot. It can be a lot. So we're super happy to, to get her on, and we look forward to being able to stop in Oakley Wines and stopping back into the Rhine, uh, grabbing some cheese next time we're down in Cincinnati. So again, you can follow her on Instagram, Stephanie L. Webster, also at 
the rind and at oakley wines and then also at bloom room otr you can reach out to her through any one of those websites uh, if you're looking at booking a experience or reserving something to have a private event at the bloom room or you know they do different wine dinners and things like that at oakley wines they have different events too as well so make sure to follow all that stuff check out the website see what upcoming stuff they have there'll be a bunch of stuff coming up for the holidays like all across the city pretty much any city um this is kind of the time where all these special events happen with all these harvest dinners wine dinners from everybody that just bottled new vintages and all this stuff too as well so it's kind of a crazy time in the food and restaurant industry now until kind of right after new year's and then it kind of dies down and picks back up a little blip for valentine's day and kind of levels off and then once you get into kind of spring it starts kicking back up too as well so but again you could follow us on instagram too as well at spoon mob check out the website spoonmob.com follow us on whatever podcast player app that you use as well as on youtube our youtube channel there you can find us that's just at spoon mob youtube.com backslash at spoon mob you can follow us there too but that is it for this week running out of weeks left for 2023 but we got episodes slotted for a bunch of them so kind of making our way towards 150 episodes here it'll be somewhere around kind of the end of the year maybe early next year we hit that mark so looking forward to that over kind of this three-year journey so far of having people on to share their story and how they got into what they're doing and what they're doing now and some people have come back on too as well so been a lot of fun up to this point looking forward to getting to a 150 and everything and all the cool conversations in between and thereafter but that's it for this week appreciate everybody who's been listening been here for a while thank you for your continued support if you're new welcome hope you've enjoyed what we've been doing and i hope you'll stick around but uh, otherwise we will talk to you guys next week on thursday